1: Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, PhD scholar at the ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, Emily Hitchman, and Manager of Policy Engagement here at the College, Dr. William Stoltz, joined Professor Rory Medcalf to unpack what secret statecraft means in the Australian context, and why it should be studied more. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to this national security podcast where we're talking about secret statecraft, uh, And that may sound like a pretty intriguing title, but our guests today, uh, and it's really great to welcome uh, Will Stoltz and also Emily Hitchman to the program, our guests are going to unpack what secret statecraft means in the Australian context and why we should study it more. So welcome to the program. Thanks, Rory.
2: Good to be here. Thank you.
1: Let's begin this, as I understand it, is a, a phrase that might capture uh, a whole range of activity from the, the, the operations of intelligence agencies in um, in gathering information or, or taking other kinds of action to the diplomacy that we use, that nations use in uh, in gathering and disseminating intelligence. A whole realm of statecraft that operates out of the public eye that's much more hidden than regular diplomacy, and is normally obscured by layers of classification, deniability, uh, secrecy, and yet is becoming somewhat more transparent in the contemporary era. I note that uh, it's, it's May 2022 at the moment that, of course, uh, as um, the, uh, the historians who are my guests will remind me as the... Uh, 70th anniversary of the uh, establishment of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. And we had a recent speech, for instance, by the uh, the Director-General of ACES, by Paul Simon uh, at the Lowy Institute, and I'm very comfortable naming some of our uh, friendly um, uh, friends and competitors out there in that think tank space, where where, um, where he articulated, I think, quite strongly the Purpose and the logic of Australia's uh, secret intelligence mission and the growing need for for that activity. There was a time, of course, where even mentioning the name ASIS uh, was, I guess, essentially breaching the Official Secrets Act or or, 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 or something of the like. And I note from. Uh, other speeches and statements by intelligence leaders for example recently here at the college we hosted Jeremy Fleming the uh, the head of britain's uh, GCHQ that it's become something of a trend in recent years for intelligence leaders to literally step out of the shadows and talk about their agencies and their operations and probably do a bit of recruitment while they're at it it's an interesting debate as to whether this is a new thing in australia is australia ahead of the curve behind the curve or just going with the flow and I know there's a lot more below the the tip of the iceberg, below the public statements by intelligence leaders. One question here at the Australian National University, where of course we're we're interested not only in the public policy dialogue, but the research and evidence-driven study of what um, of what governments do. One key question for us is: Can you realistically study secret statecraft? Or does it literally have to remain secret? And so, I'd like to invite both of you to open up a discussion on these issues and more. And I might begin with you, Will, if I may, uh, as a colleague here at the National Security College, and as someone who's worked both in and out of government, looking at the uh, the intelligence community. What, in your view, is secret statecraft? Thanks, Rory. And and it is a very broad catch-all concept, I suppose, and.
3: I guess there's a range of secret activities that the Australian Commonwealth engages in, both domestically and internationally. Right, like everything from, um, you know, uh, covert investigations happening domestically against terrorist groups and organised crime could be described as degree of secret statecraft. But I think when we're talking about the international context, what we're really focusing on, I suppose, is what we would. Kind of colloquially call espionage, you know, the collection of secret information on foreign sources. Uh, and then what is kind of broadly described as covert action, which is essentially the secret shaping of world affairs in a way that is um, either meant to be uh, deniable or otherwise kind of hidden by the state that is sponsoring that. And covert action. You know, it, it can include everything from what is sometimes called grey and black propaganda. So that's putting out, um, you know, information, whether it's misinformation or disinformation out into the public domain, um, through to political action, which is, you know, um, paying and supporting political candidates in other countries. Um, through to things that we might be more familiar with in the Australian context, which we would call special operations. So, military, um, operations, secret military operations typically conducted in the context of an otherwise declared military operation. So, there's a really big spectrum of what we could call secret statecraft. Um, I think why it's important to study it is because it is, it is, um, a key part of how nations exercise power and influence on the world. Um, you know, we we would like to think that nations are dealing with each other politely and through formal diplomatic channels all the time. But the reality is, is that in our kind of messy, uh, complicated, uncertain geopolitical environment, states sometimes need to shape things below the surface in a secret and deniable way. Um,
1: so I suppose that's what I'd say is kind of captured in this broad concept of secret statecraft. And look, I think it may be um, a little bit challenging or even uncomfortable for some of our listeners to think that, say, a middle power democracy like Australia would ever do such things. You know, if you study uh, the history of the 20th century, it's no surprise to know that the United States or Britain, and certainly many undemocratic countries, uh, did not just conduct intelligence gathering or intelligence collection with their agencies, but did actively try to shape the international environment in um, in, in covert ways, but it's a little surprising to imagine that middle powers do that. Well, I know that you have a um, uh, a very detailed and and, and somewhat uh, provocative paper on this subject uh, that the National Security College is publishing. I might just ask you, you to elaborate briefly on um, whether and why a middle power would do such mm-hmm. things. And then, Emily, I'd like to bring you into the conversation to whether you like either elaborate on or challenge this idea of secret statecraft, but I'll go to you first, Will.
3: Yeah, I think in in one sense, it's, you're right to say that we often associate these types of activities with big powers. You know, we think about um, particularly the United States in the 21st century, its usage of organisations like the CIA uh, to engage in things like regime change. We we tend to associate these types of activities with countries that have big, expansive foreign. Uh, foreign policies and foreign responsibilities. But I think in reality, uh, secret statecraft, things like COVID action and espionage are actually quite valuable to middle powers because they are a way of filling a gap between limited um, traditional levers of state power and perhaps um, a more expansive range of interests. So, uh, Australia is a, is a middle power or a smaller power in the Indo-Pacific, uh, but we have national interests that are affected by what's happening in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, the, the Pacific, um, and then further afield beyond that. And so, um, as a result, we can't—you know—we can't maintain the same type of traditional diplomatic or military footprint of a great power like the United States, which is why you sometimes need to plug the gaps by leveraging. Secret means of creating influence and opportunity for yourself. So I think that there's a logic there of why smaller nations
1: would turn to these um, perhaps unconventional ways of shaping the world. And let's come back a bit later on to questions about, you know, frankly, the the legitimacy, the consequences, the oversight of these very controversial activities. But Emily, I'll I'll, I'll go to you. I mean, you're um, you're undertaking a PhD here at uh, at ANU uh, in the intelligence studies field, uh, whether or not you agree with this secret statecraft term, it'd be interesting to hear your view on um, whether uh, it's possible and and why it's important to be be trying to study and scrutinise these activities.
2: Mm, Absolutely. I think it's a great sort of wide capture term to um, introduce into the discourse. These um, issues, as Will's alluded to, are quite under-theorised in Australia as compared to um, our near and dear allies, the US and the UK. I think I'd add to that basket of secret statecraft, um, not only the activities themselves, but the way we talk about them and how we engage on them both um, diplomatically and, and what we say sort of on the international stage, but also at home and how we kind of bring the Australian public along for the ride there. I think that's a very important part of um kind of the historical story of um, Australia's use of what we're, we're calling secret statecraft here today. Um, and I think, as Will sort of said, building on that, it's a very interesting time for this sort of statecraft. We're kind of, this is um, less my area of research, but we're approaching this kind of multipolarity polarity um, and distribution, I suppose, of military capability where um, we know that military conflict will be devastating and can escalate very quickly. And um, at the same time, we don't always know. It's not necessarily clear who has the upper hand necessarily. So that might sort of um, set the scene a little bit more for these under the surface um, kinds of actions that we can take.
1: I might leap ahead a little here and go straight to the, the question of what uh, what is your research specifically about? Um, what's what's the contribution that you're working to, uh, to make in your research?
2: Mm, absolutely, so my area of research, as you said, is intelligence studies. I'm looking particularly at the neither confirm nor deny principle um, and how it's used domestically in Australia. This is, I'm sure, a familiar form of words um, to many of your listeners. Um it's kind of a, a piece of rhetoric at its heart. Uh and it has a very interesting history um in in the Five Eyes community, particularly. It kind of got um notorious, I suppose, in uh the Cold War as part of the US's nuclear deterrence strategy. Um, but actually it was applied by the Chifley government as early as the 1940s when um when ASIO was established. So I'm sort of tracing this slippery thread, um, I suppose, through the story of intelligence in Australia and national security activities and looking at how that's evolved over the decades um, and ultimately sort of laying a foundation for an analysis of whether it's adapted to the contemporary security environment we're in in the 21st century. We're living in a of course, post-Wikileaks, post-Snowden World, um, the information security um, environment is very different to the one where this particular information handling policy was was developed. So, where does it sit now?
1: Can you maybe articulate the, the arguments both for and against um, having, if you like, a neither confirm nor deny principle, which I guess goes to that line governments often use, you know, we don't comment on intelligence matters. Uh, what, what are the arguments both ways?
2: Mm. So- it's sort of naturally, as a, um, a secrecy policy, um, could be seen as sitting um, in opposition to other liberal democratic principles such as transparency. And this issue, I suppose, was thought about by some of the earliest proponents of liberal democracy, Kant, Mill, Bentham, all talk about um, when secrecy is justified and, and typically boils down to in um, kind of national security or public safety um, circumstances. So... The, that's sort of been the key criticism of it over the years and certainly was in the context of the US nuclear deterrence strategy that's sort of anti-democratic. Um, but,
1: and this was things like whether US visiting warships or carrying nuclear weapons in the case of yes. um, allies' ports.
2: Yeah, that's quite right. And that sort of um, is also a case study in some of the arguments for um, a strategy like this. It sort of did facilitate for a time before those relationships broke down um, alliances across policy divides um, between sort of nuclear-armed countries and, and nuclear-free countries. So we have seen that um, with the the New Zealand um, Friends Cross and also with Japan. So that's, I guess, an interesting um, point in time where it both sort of worked quite well and then um, later became a point of contention. Um, The other, I suppose, aspect of it, and this is, what is being um, part of what has been studied in the U.S. in relation to this concept, where the scholarship is is a little richer than it is here in Australia, is that there's a there's kind of a courtesy to it. Um, mm. You're not openly lying to <laughs> to your um, whoever you're in dialogue with, um, whether that be a specific ally or or um, you know your democratic population. So um, it's an interesting, I suppose, way of. Um, providing a comment on the issue without um, giving away, I suppose, your strategic advantage, which is what you're trying to preserve.
1: And I guess that it tends to give rise to a bit of paranoia too. It's almost it's almost signalling that your capabilities are so great mm. that you're, uh, you're going to create this, um, this constant sense of doubt as to whether you're using them. Yep. I mean, isn't there some advantage in that?
2: Absolutely. So I suppose that's where it can be flipped on its head for other purposes. And there's um, been a little bit of research actually into how it's being used by um, more rogue states um, to actually signal capability, exactly as you're saying, um, where. They potentially weren't behind, um, say, a cyber attack at all, but it sort of suits their purposes to say we neither confirm nor deny mm-hmm. this because it it can pretend. Could, could
1: backfire. I'm thinking a little yeah. bit about Saddam and his WMD, yeah. uh, mm, you know, which he true. pretended to have. <laughs> it shows, I suppose, that there is a utility even in implausibly
3: mm. denied activities. So you can kind of see that, I guess, in recent history with some of the activities that Russia undertakes you know, even anything from the activities, interference it was doing in the lead up to the war in Ukraine, um, things like the Novichok poisoning, just by saying, by by maintaining a a position of denial, even in the face of glaring evidence, confuses the information space and creates opportunities for disinformation and misunderstanding to spread, which can have its own,
1: Mm. I guess that can have its own utility in and of itself. Mm. Let's go a little bit to the, Present day context, and I'd like to come back to some of the, I guess, you know, uh, policy, moral, legal arguments, and so forth. A little bit further on, uh, it'd be interesting to hear from both of you about the present day context. And Will, I might um, go to you on this because I know that um, it, it sets the scene for for your research paper that the college is publishing the um, the changing geopolitical environment and operational demands that many countries are facing, not only Australia, um, how and why does uh, a reliance on, on the instruments of secret statecraft make sense? Yeah. Well, I suppose in
3: our, our current context where you're seeing increased tensions and in, increased competition, particularly between China and the United States and, and the countries aligned with them, There's a need to engage in that competition but manage the escalation so that we avoid open warfare, that we avoid the entire kind of international system falling into a state of conflagration, I guess, to put it mildly. And so, in that context, secret means of shaping the environment do present a greater utility than perhaps they did, say, 20, 30 years ago, where we weren't in that heightened state of competition. Uh, and for countries like Australia, when, you know, at the moment we're seeing increased Chinese interference and in activity near to our region in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, um, it gives us options to be able to push back against. Um, China's malicious statecraft and that could even include things like exposing their own activities um, in a way that hopefully doesn't lead to that that um, that ultimate escalation that we all want to avoid. and and I think this is the moral dilemma, I suppose, the moral challenge when it comes to these types of statecraft that we might regard as unseemly, sometimes illegal, sometimes even against our national values. But their ultimate utility, if it is avoiding open conflict, open warfare between states, has a moral you know, there's a moral imperative a moral argument. on itself. So and this is this is kind of the the wicked challenge that I suppose governments, whether it be prime ministers, ministers, heads of agencies, have to grapple with, where you are presented with options to kind of secretly shape um, facts on the ground in a way that might be, you know, counterintuitive to other things you would be
1: doing in your open statecraft, but it might mean saving lives. And I guess there is the – and we won't go into this in depth now, but there's also the whole question of uh, what are the consequences if you fail or if you get caught, mm. uh, and is that – is that counterproductive? And I think these are going to become increasingly live debates in years to come. Um, if you know the environment is as challenging as, as you say it is, and I, and I think it is. Emily, what, what, what do you think about the contemporary environment in which uh, intelligence needs to operate?
2: Mm, well, absolutely agree. It's it's a moral calculation, um, and I suppose the the risk spectrum is is definitely there, though different, ranging from sort of reputational damage all the way to lives lost. I think some of the um, interesting Features of the contemporary environment were raised by Paul Simon in his his remarks. He spoke not only about sort of our state based adversaries, but the fact that um, kind of technology is more advanced and, and widely available to the public than ever before, and the kinds of analysis that were once sort of the exclusive purview of governments um, sort of mosaic analysis of of bits of information um, can now be done by kind of anyone who has, has access to that technology. Um, the cost of transferring information is next to nil. Um, you know, this this stuff can be done um, by people um, on the internet quite quickly. So that's sort of another, I guess, feature of the information environment we're in. And it was interesting to hear him speak about not only the fact that um the activities of kind of ASIS and the intelligence agencies are needed more than ever, but him emphasizing, I guess, the idea of a social license Mm. and that being central to um, not only, I guess, the moral foundation and uh, moral space it occupies in our cultural consciousness, but to the success of ACES and its activities. And that, I guess, can be extrapolated uh, more broadly across the national intelligence community without that kind of level of of public support. Um, And I guess the the kinds of discussions we're having today, um, we won't... um, kind of be able to grapple with these issues in in the public consciousness in the way that maybe um, other countries have. So, I think that's an important part of this conversation too.
1: So, you said social licence and that, Mm. I think, captures a a requirement that many agencies in democratic countries are feeling the need for. And that also goes with, of course, increases to their powers and increases to their capabilities. Uh, In other words, this is not necessarily about applying so much scrutiny to secret activity by governments that they do less of it. It may also, in fact, be about generating that political and social licence so that they can continue to do what they do or perhaps even step up the tempo of it. Um, Emily, what what do you think about, I mean, if you can comment on this, what, how do you see the social and political licence for secret statecraft in Australia or other democracies at the moment.
2: I think in Australia, and um, as I've said, my work is a history, so yeah. sort of looking, um, I suppose, over many decades. But unfortunately, our intelligence services have often been known kind of for their their scandals more than their successes. Historically, historically, like to think. and that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is, you know, could be seen as just part of the um, the space that they're in. Of course, um, if things are working out, you don't see it, you, you don't, don't hear about it. it that, yeah. That's right. Um, but I think. What some of these, or this sort of growing um, group of agency heads who've come out to speak publicly um, on these issues have recognized is that actually, um, for their work to be shored up um, and their funding to be shored up and um, to argue for the kinds of policy changes that they need, um, that is that's sort of the, the space they need to start playing in talking publicly about their work. Um, and yet Paul Simon and Mike Burgess and Rachel Noble um, all, in, all in recent years have sort of gone further than ever before in um, coming out of the shadows, um, as was the title of one of those speeches. So I think the appetite is there um, to start kind of having these conversations and it's almost as though, you know, these agencies want to have it with us. Um, so I think that's a great sign both for um, kind of the – um, the space that their work occupies um, in our, our collective consciousness in Australia, but also for us as researchers, um, to kind of have a more informed um, conversation about about how we should be engaging in things like secret statecraft.
1: We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news.
1: What's your view on the the social license environment in Australia or or, or, or other uh, like minded democracies at the moment, and, and what more can be done?
3: Yeah, look, I, I think that there's kind of several components to how you build social license for these activities. There's first and foremost a kind of legal basis. You know, you have to have have to build within um, Parliament or Congress or whatever it might be um, a, a legislative basis to undertake. The activity, so that it can happen within a, a lawful and accountable construct. I think that's that's the first one. Even if most parliamentarians properly should never be across the, um, the, the operational full, details, yeah. But at least that that the, the people's representatives have agreed in a formal way that these things should happen in a certain context. So I think there's the legislative element of, of there's a legislative plank of building this the, the social license for it. Um, then I think there is. Um, perhaps what you might even call kind of the cultural plank of it, of actually making the the larger society feel that they have a sense of ownership um, of what these agencies are doing. And that's where it's quite interesting to compare the kind of cultural representations of this stuff in Australia with the United Kingdom and the United States. You know, I think everyone who works in intelligence groans when there's a James Bond reference um, because it's so hackneyed. But the reality is, is these cultural representations, whether it be in Britain in the form of James Bond or Jack Ryan in the form of the United States, they're actually really important to building a sense of um, Uh, understanding amongst the public, albeit perhaps an uninformed understanding that these agencies exist, that they are kind of a legitimate part of what states do. Because let's be honest, most people aren't studying international relations all that deeply. They're kind of getting it through second or third hand. and the reality is agencies know this. That's why you see organizations like the CIA collaborate with or have historically collaborated with movie studios, you know, providing advice to producers on film sets and these sorts of things, giving them access to facilities to film in. The reason they're doing that is because they know that it's valuable to their social license if they can create a kind of rich kind of cultural touchstone for people to think, "Oh, well these are these are good guys fighting bad guys." Um and that is absent in Australia. We haven't had that same type of cultural experience that the United Kingdom and the United States have had. Um, I think in Paul Simon's speech um, or in the Q&A thereafter, he was suggesting that perhaps Chris Ullman in his Mandarin Files series <laughs> might be able to create an Australian spin-off that features some um, some of our uh, agencies. And but I do recommend the first season of Secret City, the TV yeah. show, but mm-hmm. yeah, maybe, I tend maybe to not the second. Very atmospheric. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I tend to think that if Australia did have a, a spy series, it would probably end up being a kind of black comedy, kind of something like The Castle or something, but (laughs) that's perhaps more our flavour. So I think there's the cultural element as well, but then there is a political element. There is the sense that agencies also have to kind of um, acclimatise political decision makers to these things as well and actually kind of cultivate their risk appetite to a certain extent, um, which I imagine is kind of Probably been happening quite recently for after Australia's changed government. You know, all of these ministers were being briefed in, um, given a clearer understanding of what these agencies are doing and what's happening out there in the world. Um, that's also a really important
1: part, so that the political masters have a sense of ownership of what these agencies and that. Are doing. But that also goes to a question which I'll put to both of you, which maybe you know, maybe nothing needs to be done, and maybe in a sense, you know, agencies are quietly doing what they need to do within the bounds of their existing legislation and. This- been quite a lot of it in Australia over the past 20 years or so, um, and that in a sense, you know, the less said about this stuff, the better. So, I kind of challenge both of you on mm. that point. Um, isn't the whole point of secret statecraft to keep it secret? Who wants to go first?
2: Mm. I'll kick off. I think, um, well, for the some of the reasons we've canvassed, um, we haven't necessarily reached the state of evolution that that some of our allies have, and if we're talking compare and contrast. um, we can look at the UK, which has kind of a, a quite functioning um, defence notice system, which is voluntary system of cooperation with the media, where they kind of um, have a, are in dialogue with government about um, what is preferable to publish on and and to refrain and from not. publishing on. Can
1: you explain a little how that works? Because doesn't that mm. involve does that involve sort of intermediaries between the agencies and government, or, or how does it operate?
2: Yeah, so um, I've looked at it in the context of um, Australia, but our historical system was modelled off, off that in the UK. So um, in the Australian context, and we had our, our denoter system kind of as a result of some pressure from the UK and the US. Um, Back in the Cold War, right? Yeah, 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 in the early days of the Cold War. So they had some intelligence that suggested there were some leaks coming out of Australian bu- bureaucracy. Oh, that.
1: never.
2: Um, <laughs> 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 um, well, that was not um, the provenance of that intelligence. It was not put to us at the time. That was kind of kept secret, later to be revealed by the Royal Commission on Espionage. Um, so that's some interesting statecraft just between you know a tree of, of allies there. Um, but at some suggestion um, from the UK government, we did um, sort of implement this this denoter system, and it comprised representatives from um, both government and the media. So um, members of Uh, the Department of Defence and members of the media, and they sat as a committee, um, the Defence Press and Broadcasting Committee, and kind of discussed and agreed um, on the um, subjects or topics I suppose on which D notices um, would be issued, and I know, Will, um, you've done some some work into this as well, and so the the notices would issue um, from that committee. And the committee itself operated in secrecy um, initially. So it was sort of this amazing feat of cooperation um, between uh, government and and the media. And I suppose coming out of the world wars, everyone could see the utility of that at that point. Um, And I think initially they issued kind of eight notices. um, But over the decades, um, as we sort of get into the Cold War, that the operation of that committee sort of faded, I suppose, and um, ultimately the existence of the committee was leaked to the media and received some coverage and then the members of the committee themselves were... um I guess, unveiled in the media as well. And I think the last actual committee meeting was in the early 80s, um, though I don't think it was ever formally disbanded. Mm, no. um, so that is was sort of a, a point in time, um, I guess, where the social licence might have been stronger um, than it is now, but that's something that's, that's sort of persisted in the UK. So there's, um, I guess, is it evolution? Are we going forward? Mm. Are we going backwards? But there's certainly, um, I guess, more of a, a relationship that could be developed there. Mm.
3: Yeah, it's. Look, I, I take the point of um, people kind of closer to the operational side of things who would say there is never. A- a basis to discuss these things publicly. Um, the secrecy is there to protect lives and is also there to maintain agencies' commitments to the people that they work with, right? This is the reason why, um, regardless of what may ever come out of the Australian archives, there are going to be files relating to intelligence officers and intelligence sources that will never see the light of day, even decades or perhaps even yeah. centuries after someone's One died hope not. Yeah. because of those agencies' commitment to those people. And I think that's quite right, that those at that individual operational level, that secrecy should be preserved. But the reality is, is that we are in a liberal democracy where we have institutions like the National Archives that are there to be the record for future generations of Australians of what has been done in the name of all Australians. And as the decades go by, we quite naturally are entitled to gain access to more and more source material about what these agencies have done in the past. And as a result of that, a lot more source material is being opened up to researchers to understand what intelligence agencies are doing. So to those people that might kind of dispute whether or not we should even talk about secret statecraft, I would kind of say the cat's already out of the bag. It's out there. It's being discussed. It's being debated. And therefore, it warrants a kind of proper rigorous academic treatment. And I think that's what... I'd like to see more of in in Australia um compared with the United States and um, the UK and even in across several European countries, there is a much more fulsome, kind of rigorous and sophisticated academic treatment of these things, um, which you know I think it would be greatly greatly benefit things like the social licence and our own kind of conceptual understanding for policymakers here in Australia if we also kind of embrace that type
1: of study. Something that we don't usually do on these podcasts, because we're aiming so much at a a public and a policy audience, is talk about in detail about you know academic literature or what what, uh, academic communities refer to as um, uh, as as their key go-to sources. But on this topic, it might be useful to hear from both of you what would you recommend if there are listeners who who are interested in these topics and haven't read much about. Uh, what is, let's say, the gold standard for studying intelligence in the international community? Uh, are there any, whether it's American or British or European or other publications you would direct people to? Emily, what mm. what, what, what do you read?
2: Yeah, well, um, how much time have you got? So I think-
1: I'll stop at three. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I'll keep it brief. There are some interesting um, monographs coming out really Uh, quite recently, like in the last sort of five to ten years, um, that grapple with these issues. So there's... um one that came out, I think, just at the end of last year, which looks at intelligence as democratic statecraft, um, and that's by, I think, and Haley Norton, mm. um, which is a really interesting read, and it looks specifically at The Five Eyes, so I suppose for um, your Australian listeners, um, that could be one place to start. There have also been a few um, books with a bit more of an American focus, but they're- um, I guess, analysis can be extrapolated. So, one called um, Democracy Declassified, which I think was 2014, so a little while ago now, by Michael Coloresi, which kind of looks at the central dilemma of um, secrecy and democracy and, and how we kind of square that circle. Um, another by Rahul Sagar called um, Secrets and Leaks, which is... It's almost a bit of a um, first person choose your own adventure, um, weaving your way through um, the US system to determine, well, if I'm an insider who has kind of a, a concern about something I know that's going on, um, where can I take that concern? What avenues can I exhaust? Um, and I guess with ultimately the test of, um, am I ever justified in, in going publicly? So he um, provides really quite an exhaustive analysis um, of how you would, um, I guess, handle such a concern as an insider. And I think both of those um, texts, Democracy, Declassified and Secrets and Leaks, um, provide a really kind of balanced and um, robust um, consideration of how we deal with the issue of secrecy in democracies. And I think there's this kind of, um, there's a bit of a, an attraction to describing it as a balance, I suppose, saying, well, we need to balance secrecy and transparency. And that's sort of the, the heart of the issue. Um, but what seems to be coming out more and more in the literature Sorry, I said I keep it brief, didn't I? No, no, this is is (laughs)
1: this is going to be the this is going to be the good one. I said three at least, but if you've got more, (laughs) this is great.
2: Um, Is well, I think across these texts um, is this idea that actually um, one can support the other; they're not opposing um, ideas. Uh, Transparency um, can support the activities we do secretly um, and build on theme of the theme of the podcast: the social license, um, and and. Um, vice versa so it's not so much two things we have to that compete against each other that we have to sort of weigh um so much as um, an interdependent relationship and that i think is is where the literature is heading this kind of slightly more nuanced picture
1: fantastic
3: will what's uh, what do you add to the list a recent book that i'd recommend listeners look up is amy zegart's um uh, book on I'm trying to remember the name of it now <laughs>
1: <Escaped my mind>. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think it's, is it is it spies lies and algorithms yeah it? spies lies mm-hmm. and
3: algorithms go. that's one the history and future of American intelligence so this yeah. this book is um, an excellent uh, piece of scholarship looking towards the future of a- American intelligence but is informed by some really brilliant interviews that she's conducted with um, members of the um, the CIA and members of the relevant congressional committees that's a great one uh Locke Johnson, is another American scholar who recently published a book called The Third Option, which is about covert action. Again, well informed by engagement with former directors of the CIA. In the Australian context though, I would actually really encourage people to um, if they've got a lazy Sunday afternoon to actually look up um, some of the primary source material that's out there because there's a great deal that we can know about um, our Australia's own secret statecraft by reviewing things like the Hope Royal Commission reports, uh, in the 90s as well, uh, there was the um, Samuel's review into ASIS as well. That produced um, a really great report that's worth reviewing. And then there's even some really fun stuff as well, like the the diaries of Richard Casey in the 1950s, with his ongoing and extensive correspondence with the first Director General of ASIS, and that kind of. They're grappling with these moral questions in their community, in their correspondence. They're talking about, you know, what should be the role of a they refer to it as a clandestine service. Um, in the context in which they find themselves, so I'd say there's some great secondary source materials out there, but also go to the go to the primary sources as well that come out of the National Archives and the National Library.
2: Yeah, with your indulgence, Rory, I second your suggestion um, for the Hope Royal Commissions. They're quite—he's um, really writes in a voice, um, and there are some quite funny turns of phrase in there. Um, I think as well for anyone who. Is interested in a bit of a crash course. Um, the very recent uh, Richardson review mm. wouldn't suggest reading the whole thing. You well, might the need a lazy how several many
1: weeks. <laughs> pages? Pages. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a million volumes. Um but the first volume I think has an executive summary that um, in but a few short pages um, And that's the review into listens. the into intelligence
1: legislation yeah, for that's Australia. Right.
2: Absolutely. But um that it kind of gives a short summary of the history, so that would be um, maybe somewhere to start for any historians listening.
1: Mm. Fantastic, and I know I know, I know um, Dennis Richardson would um, would applaud that <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> Look, before we wrap up, um, it would be great just to hear any closing thoughts from both of you on that that core question uh, of how we study these issues. How do we? I mean, you've recommended certain readings, but you're not going to get. The kind of comprehensive data sets that uh, so many academics aim for in social sciences, um, you know, or if you do, you'll probably be in prison. Um, so, in that sense, how do you study secret statecraft, uh, and why is it important to do so? Um, I'll go to you, Emily, again, mm. and then we'll finish with you, Will.
2: Sure. So, as you've mentioned, there are challenges that don't apply to necessarily other disciplines. Um, there are a few different approaches you can take, I suppose. So one that um, I had been originally considering but I'm now going in a different direction is is kind of a discourse analysis. So we just look at what governments have said um, that is necessarily out there um, and so that's one approach you could take. And you can certainly do that contemporarily. You know, you piece these um, things together and you can look at um, – I guess, how how the field of intelligence is also expanding. So, it's not just the purview of governments anymore. There's sort of these private intelligence providers out there. Um, what have government said about how they're engaging with them? And that's something for So, what I do know. you mean
1: by private intelligence providers? Um,
2: so, sort of commercial um, producers of intelligence who kind of offer that um that service um all that information either in in sort of different domains, so cyber intelligence or sort of broader geospatial intelligence um, and
1: offering the service to government not only to private clients yeah
2: yeah, for sure, so that could be um the audience for that, as you've said, could be um public or private, and that's something that paul Simon has spoken about um very recently in his speech as well. so that could be um kind of a third prong maybe to this question that we could look at. Or you can take the approach that um, I've sort of decided to take because that's where my story lies, um, which is the historical Mm. approach and, um, as Will said, the archives – is sort of starting to trickle out um, the information of 20 years ago now. I think that's their timeframe, which is approaching that sort of terrorism era. So their um material or the material that's um sort of considered as as being eligible is, is really quite contemporary. Um 20 years is not a long time, that's sort of post-millennium now. Um so the the historical analysis um can be really rich and can supplement and I suppose um uh give us more a more rich picture of um Scholarship that has gone before as well. So we can sort of look at the conclusions that scholars did draw at the time and then see, okay, um, with what we now know, what's been declassified, um, where were they kind of spot on and where can we sort of build on um, what they have sort of thought um, historically. And I think the benefit of this is, of course, the key benefit is to learn the lessons. Um, So we in Australia, I suppose, um, have very rapidly evolved our approach to secret statecraft um, over the last kind of hundred years and have had to quite quickly get up to speed um, in terms of the maturity of our services and the maturity of the um, public discourse and dialogue that we're having there. So um, study I think can inform that public debate, um, which is not sort of separate to, but shapes in a real way, kind of those policies and the activities that we're willing to engage with. Um, But I think there's also an inherent value in um, studying things like secret statecraft and um, applying some scrutiny there. Um, And I think the more that government um, wants to engage in that discussion, as we've sort of been saying over the course of this conversation, um, the more productive that can be.
1: Thank you, Emily. Will, I'll give you the last word.
3: Yeah, thanks, Rory. I, I mean, I tend to agree with um, Emily that, you know, it is a field that lends itself to the kind of grueling hard work of historians who are going to find little gems hidden away in in archives and collections. Because ultimately, to study this stuff properly compared with other areas of statecraft – we we lack the sample sizing, right? It's kind of it's kind of like trying to study the effectiveness of cars if all you have is records of car crashes. It's kind of comparable because all we have is the scandals, and that doesn't really give you a representative sense of the effectiveness of this. But. As scholars, I think we kind of say, well, c- countries have continued to maintain these agencies and maintain the laws enabling them for decades. so there must be a reason for that because if they kept on if all they did was create messes and and scandals, then you would have think they would have been finished with a, a very long long time ago um and that's why I think some of the leading the leading scholars who have really been trailblazing in this field have been people who have um, cultivated incredibly good networks and been able to do um, unattributable interviews. So Christopher Andrews, the kind of the grandfather of intelligence history, um, he, he much of what he writes, you know, in the footnotes, it's unattributable interview um, because he's gotten access and trusted relationships with people who can help, kind of guide him and inform him. Um, but I think this is something that actually the agencies themselves have realised. You know, you see that the CIA has a great program of declassifying a lot of. Source material and actively getting it out there because I think they realise that if all the people understand of these activities is the the public scandals that it's that actually goes again to their, their credibility and people's trust in them. So I think yeah, broadly speaking, I'd say that it is a field that lends itself to the um, the good work of, of historians, but also social scientists who can kind of be innovative as well in in finding little hints and um, yeah, fresh new sources.
1: It's been a great discussion and it it um, suggests that we're looking not only for a, a certain maturity of scholarship on these issues, we're also looking for a certain maturity in the political class and the bureaucratic class to, um, to be able to handle it, if you like, or to be able to um, enable it. I'm sure we'll have more conversations at the college uh, about these issues and I think that the um, – I think as you both allude to uh, – there is or one hopes there is so much more happening below the surface uh, in the way that democracies uh, protect themselves and advance their interests that there'll be plenty for you to study in future. So with that, I'll thank you both for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Um, thanks to uh, Emily Hitchman and Will Stoltz. Thanks, very
2: Thanks for having me.